I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm lucky to be joined in the studio by Rachel Bagnolo, who's the founder and CEO of Annie London. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, Carl. It's great to be here. You know, it's always great to have studio guests and also people who are uh, who are working in Philadelphia. So, Absolutely. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. But first things first, let's get our listeners pointed to your website. And the website is AnnieLondon.com. Um, Rachel, let's get right into it. Give us the elevator pitch for Annie London. So a lot of people hate wearing helmets, whether they're biking or skateboarding. And the reasons are because helmets are bulky. You can't put them away anywhere. And they're kind of ugly, a lot mm -hmm. of them. So it's really a pain in the neck. And so a lot of people are putting themselves at risk. So we created a brand, uh, a health and wellness brand around creating more stylish, safer safety gear. And our first flagship product is the London, which is a collapsible bike helmet. It's also an active sports helmet. So it could be worn for, you know, skateboarding, roller skating, rollerblading. But cyclists seem to be really going crazy over it. So Definitely, we've been involved in the cycling community, but the London is our first big product, and we have a whole line of accessories that go along with that helmet for customization. All right. Well, I've been a a, a commuter, a bike commuter, for forty four years now, almost mm -hmm. daily. So I've ridden, I've commuted a lot of days on a bike, probably most of them with a the helmet on. But give me the pitch. Why do I want? Why do I want the London? What what's what does it do for me that my current bike helmet doesn't do for me? So a couple things. Number one is the helmet that you're wearing actually has a type of material, safety material that degrades very quickly. Mm. So your helmet's actually only going to last you about two to three years, even if you never take it out of the box. It's just the way that the chemical composition of that material it, it doesn't last very long. So the London helmet actually has a military-grade safety material that lasts six to eight years. Mm -hmm. So you're able to have um, a, a product that's safer for a much longer period of time. We've actually gone through lab testing, and the helmets actually outperformed a lot of the leading helmets that you see people wearing every day by a long shot. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of safety impact, if you get into a crash you're going to sustain fewer injuries wearing the, the London. And I know it sounds crazy, like it's a, a folding helmet, but it's also safer. How's that possible? It, it's really in the technology of the way that my team and I engineered and designed the helmet to have this military-grade foam that adds a layer of protection that you just haven't seen in the biking world. Um, but this material is actually being used in military helmets. It's being used in hockey, football gear, things like that. Um, and so that, that alone is, I think a huge thing. Cause right. It's a helmet. It's supposed to protect you. Mm -hmm. So, um, that superior protection is something that I wanted to up the ante in the industry. I think this industry is ripe for, um, innovation and growth and change. So in addition to that, it folds up to 30% of its original size. So it gets really tiny that it can fit into a small bag. So when you're running into the office or you're running late to class, you can just fold this up in one second and put it in your bag. Um, okay, so Rachel, that's all super interesting. So you start, you led with works better 
uh, no, you led with lasts longer, and then you went to works better. But I would have led with it's really small. Uh, was that where the idea came from? By the way, let's before we get in, into the origin story, uh, this is the problem with radio. You just handed me the the helmet. No one knows that nor can see it. So maybe you could describe for me sure. as I hold this helmet um, what what I'm looking at. So this helmet is... It's black. It actually has a plastic outer shell that's inside of fabric, and there's a layer of a safety material inside the helmet that lines it. Um, there's also an LED light on the back of the helmet for extra visibility, and the helmet folds in at, at two points, and then it folds in again a second time to get even smaller, so it actually ends up being 30% of its original size, That it's a nice little pocket that you can put in a book bag or purse. Yeah, so I would describe it as, if I were to describe the package, it looks to be about six inches wide, eight inches long, and maybe two inches thick when folded. So it looks about the size, what would be the relevant analogy? The size of of an iPad mini, but about two inches thick. That is about that yep. size, uh, but two inches thick. And uh, and then if I were to describe it, I'd say it it is a it's a segmented. So imagine a bicycle helmet that has effectively tiles uh, segments that comprise the outer shell. So it's not one continuous shell. It's a it's a series of of plates, effectively armored plates, almost like an armadillo or a turtle. And yet those plates are are um, are connected by by flexible hinge-like elements that allow this thing to fold flat, almost like an origami helmet. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. How did I do? You did good. Okay. You did very good. All right. So I guess my first question, looking at this, would be: um, one thing it isn't is a continuous a continuous outer shell, and so um, how much of a what a bike helmet does relies on it having an integral dome-like structure. So I think it's that in our society we've been so used to what we've seen for the mm-hmm. last several decades of that you need this thick, bulky, hard shell to protect you mm-hmm. when in fact it's really the safety material and the design of how it covers your head is what does make a huge impact on how it protects you. So there is ventilation in different parts of the helmet, which is important because, um, you know, th- we don't want people overheating. So we added some some ventilation as well. Okay. And you alluded to superior performance. How is performance measured for bike for bike helmets? And so, when you say superior performance, what do you mean? So there are standards that the government has through the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Mm-hmm. And basically what they do is is they drop anvils at different angles on top of the helmet mm. at different speeds. And they beat it up. And then they yank on it to make sure the chin straps don't come off. And then they dunk it underwater. Then mm-hmm. they heat it. They heat it to, to basically um, mimic all these environmental conditions of extreme heat, extreme cold, mm-hmm. and just humidity, as well as obviously the impact. So they're testing all different things and coming at this from all different angles. And even just with this sample it's not even a production made sample like i actually made this by hand i learned how to sew and figured mm-hmm. it out um it actually outperformed you know many of the other helmets i was saying earlier what about i know because i'm a little bit of a bike nerd i know there are at least two other third party 
standards, Snell and I think ANSI maybe that that are applied to bike helmets. Has it yet been through those those uh, standard setting organizations? We've gone through CPSC, really ANSI and the others are not necessary to go through as well. It's CPSC has really been the governing body mm-hmm. that changed back in the 90s that you can really go get tested through that governing body. And once you have that certification, you're allowed to sell your product in the United States. Okay. All right. Take us back to the origin story. Where does Annie London come from? The name or the company? Well, we're going to get to the name. Let's start with the company. Okay. So, I mean, a few things really inspired me to start the company. One is that many years ago, a good friend of mine, we were kids, got into a bike crash and wasn't wearing a helmet. And she became permanently blind in one eye from that fall. Uh, It wasn't even a car was involved. It's just the way she hit her head. And that's something that always stuck with me throughout my life and and the doctors even told her if you were wearing a helmet you probably would have been fine Mm -hmm. um so i've heard so many stories like that one from friends of mine family of mine that um some people actually died in crashes so it, it to me it's a real serious safety issue that we always uh, that we assume well it's never going to happen to me mm-hmm. it all happened to somebody else and it, we i think we sometimes underestimate our f- uh, fragile state um in the event of a crash um so i so i really wanted to start a company that was built on safety number one because mm-hmm. this is a helmet right um but also it's really convenience i i saw a lot in in the city of Philadelphia, even when our bike share launched a couple of years ago, Indigo, that a lot of people weren't wearing bike helmets. And it just kind of triggered me. And I started noticing more and more. I'm like, a lot of people don't wear bike helmets in the city. Um, I, I just moved here about six years ago. And seeing that really struck me. And I was curious why people weren't wearing helmets. And I know when I was a teenager, I didn't wear helmets because it wasn't cool. I didn't like the way it looked. As soon as I drove around the street, my mom was like, you know, you better wear your helmet. And I and I would take it off right after she didn't see me anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of teens do that. But noticing it with adults, I, I was wondering why. So I started asking friends of mine. I started even going up to people on the street saying, like, why don't you wear your helmet? Like, I just really want to know. And that that those conversations yielded the same themes of it's really inconvenient. I don't have anywhere to put it away. It makes me look like a dork. I don't like the way I look in it. Um, And other people said to me, well, I'll just take my chances and, you know, just hope that nothing bad happens. Mm -hmm. And I and and they were like, you know, a helmet just doesn't it's just super annoying. And I was like, wow, there has to be a better way for this to for 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 this to be something that it's an easy choice to just throw your helmet on and you don't think about it. Mm -hmm. So I just started from there. I'm going to ask you an impossible question. I'll ask you. It has to you anyway, but do you, do you have any idea what the actual risk is if I wear the bike without a helmet? That is, what what's the probability something bad's going to happen to me if I wear a bike without a helmet? I mean, a bike without I a helmet? think the problem the probability depends on the environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So, like I've noticed that sixty eight percent of all bike crashes occur in urban areas, mm-hmm. um, and there's really it's really the numbers that I go by are what what is the difference between injury in the event of a crash mm. versus 
when you're not in a crash. And it's seen that when you are wearing a helmet, it reduces head and neck injury by at least 50 to 60 Mm percent, which is huge um, in making the difference between life and death. And, And our research has shown that when there's been bike fatalities, what's not reported is whether or not people were wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say, you know, aside from whose fault it was and what happened, the truth is, is that about 90% of bike related deaths were associated with people not that weren't wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research that points to if you are wearing a helmet and something does happen, you're gonna survive versus if you hit that head, your head the wrong way, you're done you yeah know? so rachel tell, you were not you you said you this thing happened to you as a child mm-hmm. what what caused the what was the critical moment where you said okay i'm going to start a company where did this actual idea come from so interestingly i many you know many years ago i was actually in a doctor program for psychology and i was becoming a doctor mm. and i was a therapist and i was in that whole world and you know, I wasn't really happy. I was doing well at it and I just, something didn't feel right. I was already burnt out. I give people a lot of credit that are therapists out there. Um, but I ended up deciding to go into business and I, and I realized from, from looking back at my life and looking back at all the volunteer work that I've done in nonprofits, that there was always this aspect of me that was wanting to be the leader and run Mm. things. And I always like starting new projects out of thin air. Um, I started a mentoring program for at-risk teens when I was an undergrad at Rutgers in New Brunswick. And that was one of the most exciting things I'd ever done, just starting this program from nothing. So I realized when I was in this doctor program, there might be something about me that I wasn't really aware of. So I started going to career coaching and I found that there was really this entrepreneurial spirit and Mm. I had never really thought about that word. It never really came up in my life. It was more like I'm a leader. I make things happen. So I decided to get my MBA. I thought, okay, I've never taken a business class in my life. I don't know anything formally about business. Mm -hmm. So I just walked into the admissions office. Okay, hold on. I want to interrupt you because you said something very interesting that piqued my curiosity. You said there was a diagnostic that indicated that you had the entrepreneurial spirit. And you mentioned one element of that, which was that you like to be in charge. You like to be a leader. What else would characterize the entrepreneurial spirit? Like what else was there that that led you to that conclusion? I think there's an aspect of vision where Mm -hmm. you see and you can envision a better future and, and see beyond, you look beyond what's in front of you and you say, I think that it could be way better or be completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, that you're not just about managing what's happening right now and not just leading what's happening right now, but you're able to look into the future and sort of be a fortune teller, mm-hmm. I think. And you can see, a, and that's what happened with the mentoring program that I started was that I didn't like the internship programs that they offered in the program. So I went to the head of the department. I said, I don't like any of these. I want to go start my own. And I really think that teenagers could use mentors because I did that a lot in the nonprofit world. So the professor that ran it just like looked at me and he was like, all right, go ahead, like see what you can do. So Mm -hmm. that was my internship was starting this program. Mm -hmm. So I think um, being able to have the gumption and grit to really know that you're going to hear no a lot and that people are going to 
think you're crazy sometimes. I mean, even with the earlier versions of this helmet, people were like, what is that? You know, um, but you have to be able to see past that and have the drive and be able to delegate your your vision to other people to make it happen. So. All right. So that I interrupted you. You were about to tell me about deciding to go to an get an MBA. Okay, so I was so I had looked up MBA programs. I was like, okay, I'm in Philly and I looked up Drexel's MBA and I saw that they had an entrepreneurship program. Mm -hmm. So I made a meeting with the admissions director and I and I walked in there and I said, you know, I was going to be a doctor in clinical psychology. Here's my transcripts. Um, I took the GRE and everything. I was like, so you know, I was getting straight A's in the doctor program, and I said to him, "You're going to accept me today into this <laughs> MBA program." And and so we had a conversation, and I told him my that I wanted to start a company, and I would give and I would make Drexel proud. Mm-hmm. And and we had this conversation, and the d- director looked at me, and he's like, "Well, I really like your tenacity." And I thought to myself, the worst that could happen is he's going to say no to me. Mm-hmm. So when we sat there and and we were talking, he said, consider this your interview, which you've passed with flying colors. He said, do you want to start next month? And I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. And that's how I got in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that'll work for everybody, but mm-hmm. I had the doctorate behind me and I leveraged what I had to offer. And I was like, you know, you guys want me for your school. Mm-hmm. And so um, I started the next month. And that's how I got into the MBA. And throughout that program, I kept thinking, what's going to be my big thing? Mm-hmm. What's going to be this thing? And um, I was always looking for opportunities. And I had I had come up with a few different ideas and I tested them out based on what I had learned. And things just kind of led nowhere or I wasn't really excited or passionate about the idea. I some, I still think some of the ideas I had are great ideas. I just wasn't super into maybe that field or something mm-hmm. like that. But when this came to me about two years ago, this idea, I was like, this is it. And the more research that I did and the more people I talked to, it just kept pulling me in. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that I needed to go forward with this. Now, but... But I'm still. Were you, were you particularly interested in cycling or personal transportation or urban challenges? I mean, what? Why? Why bike helmet? Okay, so with cycling, you know, it goes back very far back to when I when I was in high school. Is that I grew up in a very abusive home, and biking for me was my freedom. Mm. So, like to me, biking is independence. I mean, it's the one thing that everybody can get on and Mm -hmm. get away from a situation or just go to where they need to go. So to me, it's about mobility. So because I was involved in the psych world and I see the pain that so many people out there are in, I know that the bike was something for me Mm. that's so simple that got me out of a bad situation. It's, and I just feel that from what I, you know, my research on the bicycle, I'm super into women's history and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about the name of the company about that. Um, But it's really just knowing that that op- that mobility was k- something that people weren't engaging in because they said even people said to me I won't bike because I don't feel safe mm. and some people have even said to me I won't wear I won't even bike cuz I don't want to wear a helmet and if I don't have my helmet on me I won't bike and I was like you know if there's some way that I could make a helmet that people would love and they would want to bike getting more people on the road is my goal and doing it safely 
so that there's, you know, no horrible accidents like what happened to Judy, my friend, um, and many others out there, that then I feel my vision is being realized. Okay, so you had the epiphany that you wanted to create a better bike helmet. You knew some of the motivation for why people weren't wearing helmets, what you wanted to achieve. What, what, how'd you get to a product design? So what I started out with was, like you had said earlier, the word origami. Mm. So I started sketching drawings and then cutting them out and working with them. And I, I actually brought some people on my team that were product design students. Some were actually engineers and some were product um, designers for many years. Others were students. And I brought them together and we did brainstorming sessions and, d- sessions and did what I called a helmet hackathon yeah. in my apartment. Yeah. And we just started iterating and designing. And I brought cyclists in from the community to talk with the designers because I said designers sometimes get caught up in themselves and you really need to get out there and talk to the customer. Yeah. So that's what I do is I love going to biking events and going and just talking to cyclists mm-hmm. and um, getting them to talk together, the designers and the cyclists was really killer to like help us iterate. And yeah. we iterated, I mean, from the beginning, this is like the 10th design. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there were, there were two things you said that I think are generalizable about that. The first is that you yourself, despite not being a product designer, got your hands dirty and got started with that first prototype. And, that's something I advise people regularly, which is if you're not willing to get your hands dirty yourself, you're probably not up for doing physical products. I mean, it's something you've got to be prepared to experiment with. And honestly, I mean, I have an engin- I have a professorship in mechanical engineering at Penn, and we don't actually teach you very much in engineering school for, to design this kind of kind of product. It's almost more intuition and and practice and iteration than it is some theoretical. Uh, notion you get in school. So yeah, I think you know a key lesson for our listeners is if you're going to do physical goods, especially relatively simple physical goods, you should not be afraid to just get your hands dirty and get started, even just with cardboard and duct tape. Absolutely. So that's that's point number I one. I didn't know how to sew. I bought a right? sewing machine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How hard can it be? Yeah. And and then the second element of that, though, and the one I want to drill down a little bit on is, is how you engaged these designers because that's a question I get all the time. How do I find people? Because I probably can't pay them, right? How do I get them engaged in my project? So I did put together, you know, I did go dip into my savings big time to like pay some of these designers. Okay, so you paid them a little bit. I did. I paid them something for sure. Um, And and really, and I did put them on the patent, Mm. you know, because I wanted them to all know that they were a part of this. Right. Um, to be able to say that they were a part of that design, which made them feel really good. So I would consider that when you're filing your utility or design patents mm-hmm. to include the names mm-hmm. of people that contributed. Um, but that's I did, actually required by law. So it's not just a nice to It have. is. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Good point. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And some people, I think, don't realize that. And yeah. uh, a lawyer told me that. I was like, okay, that's yeah. good to know. Um, so with this, with this, you know, current model, it was really that I reached out to students at different design schools and really net like reach, mm-hmm. reached into my network you just got to ask around and i will say that that was probably the most difficult thing yeah is that finding the right people that were interested in doing this mm-hmm. was a huge challenge mm-hmm. so i just didn't give up yeah i just kept going 
All right. Well, we just have a minute left, but I, I promised I would get to this name. So tell me where the name Annie London comes from. Yeah. So Annie London comes from the name of the woman, Annie Londonderry, who was the first person to ride around the entire world on a bicycle mm. in the late 1800s. So she actually took a bet by these two wealthy men in Boston that summer. And it was for $10,000, which in today's money is $5.4 million. Whoa. And she really just biked around the world. She did exactly what they asked, came mm-hmm. back, took the 10000 and started her own company. Mm. And so that was right around the time women's liberation was happening with suff- the suffragette movement. Right. So that really inspired me a lot because being a woman entrepreneur, I think that me and Annie are kind of leading parallel lives in yeah. this way of going out into the unknown and making things happen. Yeah, and since Londonderry is too long to fit on the bike helmet, you just made it London. Uh, yeah, I just, so that I could get away with the name, I changed the spelling and everything. Uh, it's okay. Annie London. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to spell one more time because we're, we're out of time, but it's Annie, A-N-N-E-E, London. So AnnieLondon.com. Uh, all right, Rachel, so last word. When, when, can we, when can we buy one? You can pre-order one right now okay. and get twenty percent off. Right. Um, there's a promo code on the website for okay. for this business for this radio station right now, but the helmets will be ready this holiday season. All right, what's our promo code? How does that work? The promo code when you go on the site yeah. and you go through ordering, you just put in PTW two thousand seventeen, and it will take twenty percent off. PTW two thousand seventeen. Yes, All right. correct. All right, you heard it here first. All right, get 20% off. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for coming in. Super interesting. Thank you so much, Carl. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.